You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. We'll start with our Old Testament reading, uh, which is in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2, 11 and 13. Please, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, 2, 11 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading will be in Colossians 1, Colossians 1, 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we're so easily enamored and distracted by shiny things. (laughs) And we chase after that which we think will bring us joy and satisfaction and peace. We try as hard as we can to find any other solution to our problems, to our aches, to our pains, to our anxieties, to our fears, to our troubles, any other solution but the one that you've given So God, I pray now over these next few weeks that we would fix our gaze at the person of Jesus, that we would marvel at him together, that we would see together his beauty, we'd see together his glory, we'd see together his preeminence, his sovereignty, his mercy, and his goodness. God, as we anticipate the celebration of Christmas, as we spend a season hoping for and longing for the day when all things will be made new. I pray, Father, that we would not be bored with Jesus. We wouldn't be distracted from Jesus. That we'd be overjoyed with the person and the work and the goodness and the beauty and the sovereignty of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Christmas was the decisive move in a chess game that has been going on for centuries. 
it was a surprising move, shocking move, that the God of the universe would overcome evil, that the God of the universe um, would undo human sin and darkness and injustice, um, that the, um, the God of the universe um, would set in motion the absolute destruction of the serpent, the dragon, which has enslaved God's people um, for so, so long and in so many ways, that he would do so in a manger in Bethlehem and a baby. Um, but that's what Christmas is. It's not simply a cute thing. It's not simply um, kind of a sentimental, warm, and fuzzy thing. It was the decisive move, the decisive move by God to overcome evil, the decisive move by God to liberate his people, the decisive move by God to, to see his name and his glory redeem and reconcile um, not just one small people group um, uh, over just, uh, just east of the Mediterranean Sea, um, but rather to redeem to himself all the nations of the earth. That every place would be marked by goodness. That, that every place would be marked by life. That every place would be marked by peace and righteousness and goodness. This is what Christmas is. And so um, when we look back on this move, as we anticipate um, December 25th and gathering together in this room, because what day is better for coming to church than Christmas morning? It's the best. Um, as we anticipate that exciting morning when we gather in this room to celebrate the coming of Jesus, Advent teaches us how do we live in the midst of that decisive move between that move and the day when the game is over. How do we live in between those times? How do we be a people longing for, hoping for, anticipating the consummation of all things And do so in the face of darkness, do so in the face of apparent alternative moves happening um, by the enemy, to live in the midst of the tension between the the fact that the decisive move has been made, the game's simply going to be over soon, um, and yet all um, our enemy keeps using all the pieces on the board as long as he possibly can. He's one of those guys that just annoyingly plays the chess game out as long as he can, even though he knows the game is over. I don't know how much experience you have with chess. There usually comes a moment in the game when it's over. Everybody knows it's over. The decisive move has been played. There's no avoiding. It's just a matter of like playing out the game all the way to the end. Um, and some people graciously will just tip their king over and the game will be done. But some people, really annoying people, well, just keep playing until you just have to take literally all the pieces. So you go on for hours beyond when you needed to go on. Um, that's the time in which we live. The decisive move has been made. The game's over. And yet, pieces keep having to get moved around the board. So how do we live in the midst of that? Um, that kind of hope? Um, that kind of longing? And a kind of deep-rooted confidence that the game is over, the game has been won. That's what this season is. And, and the solution, the solution that um, I, I want us to consider 
um, that I want us to um, pursue over these coming weeks um, is that the answer to how we live in the tension of this moment, how do we know what to do when the game's over and yet the game keeps awkwardly being played for the next few centuries, um, how do we live in the midst of that, um, I, I believe comes down to one fundamental calling that we would be a people fixated on Jesus. That we would look back again and again and again with joy and confidence and, and dare I say a sense of marveling awe the person, the work, the accomplishment of Jesus in other words living in this moment well depends on looking back over and over and over again consistently persisting in looking back at that first move that changed the game. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, still one of the most compelling passages of scripture I've ever read in terms of um, seeing and understanding how does God change us? How does God um, pull us deeper and deeper into the, the joy of what it means to be his people? He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. He goes on in chapter 4 to tell us what is that glory, the glory of the Lord. Um, um, and he says that the, um, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing um, the, the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, how do we live in this moment? Um, it is through unveiled faces, beholding, seeing, set our, setting our gaze on the face of of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean by this some sort of like theological abstraction. In fact, we're going to see in just a minute. I mean quite the opposite of that. I don't merely mean kind of us sitting in ro- rooms, maybe in robes, with candles and quietness and just contemplating deep theological truths. I mean for us to be a people who, who have seen and beheld and continue to gather in this room week after week to see and behold, who get up in the morning and open our Bibles to see and to behold, and then are transformed and changed to live faithfully in this age. And so for us, I pray that our Advent season be most deeply marked by a renewed interest in the person of Jesus. You see, we live in an age, in a world that is anxiously desperate to to find new definitions, new ways of describing the problem with the world. One thing that is universally accepted is that things are not as they should be. There is a darkness that haunts the world. There is the specter of death. There is evil. There is injustice. Um, And our world, seeing that, it's undeniable, seeing that, anxiously searches for any way that it can to redefine what is wrong with the world, that it might redefine the solution to that problem, that it might avoid the one solution that God has given us.
And so I would warn you, living in a world like that, I think we find ourselves, even as Christians, often scrambling, anxiously scrambling, to redefine what is wrong with us, with our marriage, with our relationships, with our children, in order to avoid the only solution God has offered. It's the call in the midst of living in this season, this this season where dawn has broken, the sun hasn't fully risen. When we live between the ages, between the time of Christ's coming, the decisive move having been made, and the day when finally all the pieces um, are wiped off the board. The temptation right now is to constantly scramble for quick, godless fixes. So the call during these weeks is may we fix our gaze again on the person of Jesus. May we marvel together at the person of Jesus. May we be shocked again at the person of Jesus. Today we're going to look at Colossians 1, um, which kind of covers all the bases. And in the coming weeks, we're going to take different aspects of the beauty of Jesus and the promise of Jesus coming to consider together who he is um, and and how um, we are called to worship him and live in the light of um, his coming to forgive sins, his coming to crush the enemies of God, his coming um, uh, to to be the one who is worshipped by shepherds, by the way, which is marvelous, Um, to be the one who comes to crush the head of the dragon. Today, I want us to consider together just the sheer and absolute, um, as the title in the ESV says over these verses, the preeminence of Christ. What is he? Who is he? Why is this our fixation? And then in the light of that, consider one, the the troubles, the temptations being faced by the church in Colossae, um, and how those, I think, mirror our own. In fact, I, I don't think they uniquely mirror our own. I think they mirror every problem, every temptation faced by the church throughout all the ages. So I'm going to start here by considering the the particular history of what's going on in Colossae, what Paul is addressing. Why did Paul write this letter? I want us to start there. Can I consider um, the the big contextual picture? Um, And then I want us to look together at how he answers um, that particular problem in the church in Colossae, but, but along the way, I want us to um, see kind of our own problems in the middle of it. Um, and so first, uh, I, I want you to see that the, the, the thing that Paul is addressing here um, is that there is a kind of false teaching, and, and it's actually a kind of odd Jewish, pagan, Christian syncretism um, that's arising in the church in Colossae and surrounding um, the church that Paul wants to address Um, to these Colossians. So so what is that kind of weird syncretistic teaching that's going on? We'll we'll start with the Jewish background um, and kind of how that's getting twisted and we'll bring in um, the the Gentile or the Roman background at the heart of it. The one thing you need to know uh, about the Roman Empire in general um, and this city in particular is that um, Rome was not monotheistic. Um, and in, in fact, it was a, a city where you could just absorb all the gods that you could. In fact, that was one of the geniuses of their own empire. Is they, um, um, and I think it's a, a genius that's mirrored also in our secular age. It, it is the ability to kind of 
um, absorb um, and accept all the religions, all the deities, all the gods, and then in an odd kind of twisted sort of way um, to kind of blend them all together. And so when you go to the city um, where the Colossians were, um, when you go to this city, um, you don't have one god ruling over this city as you would have found in um, the ancient world. What you found is um, the opportunity to worship whatever god you wanted and to worship all of them. In fact, it was very important to you to worship as many of them as you possibly could because the more gods you made happy, the more chance you had of being happy. Um, and, and um, at the heart of kind of this religion, at the, at the, at the heart of Colossae, was this um, mystery religion, this idea that um, through an act of cleansing, um, an act of, I actually started with the Gentiles instead of the Jews, but we'll go back there, I promise. Um, uh, there was a, a kind of uh, preparation phase for then entering into and receiving from the various gods of the city um, a, a set of mysterious knowledge. And so through fasting, through abstaining from certain foods and certain activities, um, uh, through certain washings and cleansings, um, you then would be made ready over the course of several days. um, And then you were allowed to then enter into a secret room where we would have some sort of charismatic, ecstatic experience. Um, And there, having this ecstatic experience, you'd receive this special, mysterious knowledge from the gods or from God or from some combination of all the gods. Um, And then that particular secret knowledge um, would then elevate you above your peers because they didn't have that secret knowledge. That having this secret knowledge, you would then go out and live your life as a faithful um, Colossian. A better Colossian, a good Colossian. So there's that kind of model of religion that, that, that began to absorb the, the worship of all the different gods. There was just different kind of preparatory ceremonies and different kinds of knowledge, secret knowledge, that you would receive ecstatically um, in your special room, in the heart of hearts, in the holy holies of those particular temples. Now combine that with a kind of um, Jewish religion that, that, um, that had been kind of uh, reformatted, reframed, for a Roman audience. And at the heart of that was, again, the same sort of thing. Um, Through preparation, through fasting, um, through special washings and cleansings, um, you were then made uh, able to, worthy to, um, come into the presence of God. There, even within a particular vein of apocalyptic Judaism, um, arose this idea that um, through these cleansings, um, you could have a, a particular ecstatic experience in the presence of God. You could make yourself worthy of the presence of God, um, and then gathering in the presence of God, um, He would make known to you a secret mystery, a secret knowledge of what it meant to be his people. Um, and, and so you see this kind of model of Judaism. They took kind of the model of the temple, they adapted it to a Roman culture, and then these things started to bleed together. Um, and the, the only real difference being that they said, no, the, the God isn't Zeus or Artemis or, or any of those other gods, it's Yahweh, but we worship him basically the same way. And so we see the plague that has haunted God's people from the desert after the exodus to our own day. But constantly adapting, but not ever fully just out and out abandoning the Bible or the name of God or his commands, just 
twisting, altering, adding to, making sure it's not quite out of sync or in conflict with the surrounding culture. So it becomes a faith that's palatable to those who aren't privy to the scriptures. I mean, this is at the heart of, as God established the people of Israel, um, keeping them safe and, and, and set apart. His warning to them as they go into the promised land um, is if you intermarry, if you start to mingle with and live in the midst of this other people, um, the result will be you'll begin to chase after their gods. What's fascinating is the way that Israel always chased after gods was rarely to just wholesale day one, you know what, we're done with Yahweh, we're done um, with the Old Testament, we're done um, with covenantal worship, and now we're just going full bore on Molech. No, it generally was, um, we we start out faithful, we're surrounded by the other nations, we want to be at peace with the other nations, and so certain elements of Molech worship begin to kind of interweave and and find their way into our worship of Yahweh, Um, certain practices, certain ways of being holy, certain ways of being cleansed, certain ways of of pursuing righteousness and justice begin to get redefined by the surrounding religion, the surrounding culture, the surrounding world. And that's what's happening to the Colossians. They've somehow added Jesus to this. Maybe he's the one that gives you your ecstatic knowledge. And and this, I think, is the troubles that continue to haunt the people of God even in our day. Generally, in our culture, cultural scrambling to find meaning, to find some solution, to redefine problems. So we scramble to any other, any kind of ecstatic experience we can have. And we have the proliferation of self-help and self-care and self-discovery, um, uh, self-actualization. I'm discovering who I am on the inside. How do I resonate with the world? Trying to find some secret knowledge about um, whether I, I, what gender I am or what desires I have um, or, or what, um, how I will find sexual fulfillment or joyful fulfillment or peaceful fulfillment or, or, or who I might be. I mean, the, um, the, uh, the, the explosion of things like the Enneagram and other things like it, like this, this utter preoccupation with, with finding some secret knowledge, finding some secret code. You take a test and you just suddenly discover who you are and what you're meant to be in the world. You take a secret test or you hum a certain hum or you go to a particular yoga class um, or, or you do whatever the thing is and you find yourself enlightened. You find yourself uh, made whole. You find yourself, um, well, you find yourself. Or we we consumed with political problems, assuming that these problems have primarily political solutions. We, we um, get absorbed with social theories or social conspiracies, um, assuming that they are um, simply going to be solved by social solutions. Um, we, uh, we look at the climate and say, no, the real problem is a climate crisis, um, and, and think that the solutions are primarily scientific or climate Solutions. But what about 
our own temptations. I don't think in this room there's a ton of people all absorbed with the Enneagram. But, but I do think that there is a way of avoiding Jesus Christians have perfected. I mean, in our own tradition. I've seen it again and again. I think I've probably used it again and again. Reformed confessional deep dives. If I can gain some sort of secret knowledge into the vast knowledge and wisdom of the Westminster Divines, then then I will be made holy and right. If I can um, be the guy that notices that turn of phrase that the pastor used, um, shouldn't have used, clearly out of line with 1626 version of the Westminster Confession and, and uh, chapter 3, section 4, paragraph 2. You want to quote that. Uh, a kind of obsession in our circles with, with um, esoteric theological knowledge, um, uh, seeking after um, the right confessional standards or, or um, um, even a, a kind of um, way of looking for all the typology in the Bible, um, of layering it upon layering it, and, and all a way of, of, of not being fixated on Jesus, not seeing Jesus for who he is. And now, please don't get me wrong. I love theology. And I pray that we'd be a people, a church that loves theology, but loves theology because we are fixated on Jesus. We want to know everything we can about him. But I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that many of us have used Bible knowledge, used weird patterns of typology. We've used um, uh, confessional um, standards and, and deep dives on confessional standards and, um, and, and uh, a fixation on um, certain theological systems simply as a way of avoiding the, the, the hard, hard, often painful work of doing the dishes, of repenting for that angry word spoken to your spouse. Hospitality, of generosity, kindness, of mercy, working on your marriage. Again, I have to say it one more time. Theology is wonderful. But don't use it as an excuse, a means, a way of avoiding the work that Christ has actually called you to. Then there's the experience, 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 the sort of higher life, the sort of emotional satisfaction. I'm looking for some higher worship experience, looking for some um, deeper prayer pattern, looking um, for for some uh, kind of uh, making um, spirituality a sort of uh, persistent hobby in your life rather than beholding Jesus himself and trusting what Jesus has said and who Jesus is and what God has declared in his word, just resting in that. We've become masters at using the gifts of God and seeing them twisted 
as a means by which we avoid actually dealing with Jesus. So whether they're secular answers or there are particular Christian answers, one of the things that we see again and again and again is that all of them marginalize the glory, the centrality, the preeminence, the supremacy of Jesus himself. You see this uh, arising in this text. Um, in the, the paragraph before um, we, we get into the paragraph we're looking at, um, he makes mention of this idea of knowledge, that, that all of this knowledge has been made known, has been revealed in Jesus, that this is what he's doing to combat um, this false teaching. He says, um, you're going to look for more knowledge, more secret knowledge. Um, you're going to look for some um, secret solution to the world's problems or secret solution to your marriage or secret solution to society's ills um, or to climate change. Um, you're chasing after them. Um, and all the knowledge, all of it is revealed here Jesus. So we have distractions, we have secret mystery religions that might be mostly theologically accurate, but they're just used as distractions. Keep us from beholding Christ, and in beholding Christ, dealing with our actual sins. So how does Paul answer this? I'm going to give us kind of first an outline, and then I want to dive into it, because it is sweet and precious. Even though I'm running out of time, I'll try to hurry. So what's the shape of 13 through 23? Um, First, he begins by declaring something that is objectively true and is all-defining for us. Um, and, And he does it in such a way as to subvert any sort of kind of secret higher forms of Christianity um, that the, the church in Colossae or we ourselves might try to seek after, might try to find. Um, and he does it by saying um, there in verse, oh no, um, here it is. Uh, look with me in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Um, There is a stark binary in the Bible's portrayal of the world. There is the kingdom of darkness. Um, There is, uh, we've seen it in, say, Romans chapter 5, the the family of Adam. Um, And then over here, the kingdom of Jesus, the reign of Jesus. There is darkness and there is light. There is um, um, those who belong to the serpent um, and, and those who reconciled to God belong to the Son. And so Paul begins by, um, as you look out at the world, here is the defining narrative framework through which you should see and understand everything. Um, you, those of you who are in Jesus, those of you who believe in Jesus, those of you who have been baptized into the name of the triune God, you have been transferred from the reign of darkness and death into the kingdom of Jesus. And there's not a third thing. You understand? There's not like, now you've all graduated from kingdom of dark high school 
into the light of college, and now there's a secret door through which you can go to and get to grad school. It is just, sorry to the upper school principal, there's just darkness and Jesus. And what's fascinating, just about the background, is um, these rooms where they were to have these kind of ecstatic, revelatory experiences were dark. So that's where secret stuff happens, right? You see what Paul does by undermining the whole thing? He says, no, 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 no. <laughs> you were in darkness, but Jesus brought you out of darkness into his kingdom. Don't go back into darkness. That's dumb. You want to stay out of darkness. You want to come into and see that you have been transferred, been changed. Your ownership has been altered. You've been redeemed and forgiven by his beloved son. And then beginning in verse 15, um, we have a description of this Jesus. And oh, what a description. How's he lining it up? First, in verses 15 to 17, we see Christ as the font of all creation itself. So who is this Jesus that we will celebrate his coming on Christmas Day? He is the one that everything was created for. Think about that. Everything was created for him. I I don't think you got it. Let's say it again. Everything. (laughs) Like all of it. Was created for him. Cars. Created for him. Turkey. Take the deep fried turkey. It's created for him. Wine. It's created for him. Sex was created for him. Children created for him. Christmas trees created for him. All of it was created for him. Every square inch of everything you can imagine in all of the world was made for him, to glorify him, to magnify him, to serve his purposes. Everything you have, every breath you take, your hands, your eyeballs, the fact that we're not blind, wandering around a flat gray world, but we filled this world with color and beauty and marvels like the Rocky Mountains that that, that we get bored with. Isn't that amazing? But they're there. You should look at them today. You should see them. And seeing them, you should be reminded, those aren't mine. They were created for Jesus. So verses 15 to 17 tell us that everything, everything was created for Jesus. Now here, and and, and here's just the shocker. And 
everything. Please take note of everywhere the Bible says everything. Anytime it says everything, you should go, wait a second, I need to reread that. Everything. Not only was it created for him, it was created by him. Who do we worship on Christmas morning? What are we doing anticipating the arrival of Christmas? Why do we give gifts? Um, Not only for the cross, we'll get to that in a second, but we also celebrate the sheer unthinkable reality that the one everything was made for and the one through whom everything was made took on flesh and walked around us and ate things and drank things and I think told jokes and, and well, we know he told jokes and, and, and preached and spoke and ate and drank and slept. Who is this Jesus? He is the maker of everything, the creator of everything. And to go back again, Paul is saying, this is the mystery. It's not hidden anymore in a dark room. It's not hidden anymore in some new social theory. It's not hidden anymore in some charts and graphs that we can pull together uh, around climate change. It's not hidden somewhere in a, in a secret test you can take and find your right number. Um, it's not hidden somewhere um, in, in um, finding the right political candidate to put in the right political office. No, it is revealed. It's made known. It's seen. And this is what it is that this Jesus, this one whom we sing of, this one whom we worship... Um, He created all things and all things were made for him. And, verses 18 to 20, he is the head of the church. He is the redeeming head of the church. He's not in a secret room over there, but no, he is our head, our Lord. He is the one who, um, through and in the church, reconciles us to God. And in fact, here's the wonderful thing. All of the stuff that was made by him and for him that we then have twisted and turned for our own selfish, wicked purposes, um, um, our own lusts to satisfy, our own selfish glory to magnify. Um, He himself, um, because of all that sin, those things are then at odds with, at war with God. And Jesus Christ has come not just to reconcile us as some sort of disembodied soul, to reconcile all of that stuff, to redeem all of it. He has reconciled all things to God. You see what Paul's doing here, right? To be made worthy of coming into the presence of God in order to be made worthy to receive secret Knowledge, you must forsake these twisted things. You must forsake um, these created things. And Paul um, won't have any of it. You see, the coming of Jesus is not to whisk us away from this twisted, dark world, but to reconcile all things. Which, of course, right? Because all of those things were made by him and for him. But to reconcile all of those things for a people who belong to him. 
This is the mystery made plain, made clear. And I'm sorry if it's disappointing. You, you, you can't find it and kind of keep it hidden in a secret book. It is revealed and made plain to us. He is, as he says in verse 26, the history hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed. But let's keep going. Verses 21 to 23, he not only is the reconciler of us, he also is the sanctifier of us. And he is our steadfast hope and the object of our faith. Great mystery revealed is that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Jesus Christ has He has reconciled us to the Father. And in Jesus Christ, all those things created by Jesus and created for Jesus, none of them are lost. But in his blood, they are reconciled to God. And so Jesus has come. He has borne our sins. The maker of worlds has come. Born our sins and risen from the dead and reigns over all things now. The decisive move on the chessboard has been made. This is the faith of Advent. Not the hope that one day God will figure out the right move to make. The mystery has been revealed. He made it. The one who made all things, the one who rules all things, the one who even now holds all things together, has transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, that he is head over the church and he is redeeming this world and reconciling this world for his People. And lest you think this is some mere esoteric kind of proclamation, like kind of this is some deep dive into theology so that we can avoid the hard work that God has given us. Everything else Paul says in Colossians is now, in light of this mystery, put on the new self. In light of this mystery, don't avoid the hard, often painful work that's right in front of you. Don't find um, kind of political conspiracies or weird social theories um, or strange personality tests. Oh, but rather put away sexual immorality, put away covetousness, put away anger, put away wrath and malice and slander. Instead, put on kindness, put on patience, put on forgiveness, put on perhaps most of all, gratitude, that we would be a people marked by kindness, by patience, by forgiveness, by gratitude. And then he immediately then, at the end of chapter three, again, after this glorious hymn in chapter one, moves um, through chapter two, kind of um, explaining it, kind of doing away with these mystery religions, and then moving into chapter three, um, tells us what to put on, how to deal with the, the, the everyday difficult sins right smack dab in front of us, and then applies all of that directly to marriage and raising children and the difficult task of being raised sometimes. I'll admit it, children. He applies it to 
working for somebody. And what to do when people work for you. You see, this fixation on Jesus is not just some esoteric kind of escape from the everyday work of living life on the ground. It is, in fact, the grounds of all life to be lived on the ground. It is a call to put away certain things and to put on certain things and to deal with the real faithful work that God's put directly in front of you in this age where the decisive move has been made. And so remember that decisive mood, that decisive move in Jesus. Marvel at Jesus. Worship Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Put away all that is wicked and dead because you've been reconciled to God. Put on all that is in obedience to his righteousness and goodness because you've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And may we wait with worship and with hope. Let's pray and prepare for communion.